Stay hungry, stay foolish. Before I start today's show, I just want to announce a new sponsor for the show. Now, before you tune out, <laughs> I want to say that I have resisted getting a sponsor for such a long time. I've been offered sponsorship for the show for the past three years, and I felt this sponsor was the right fit. It looks to empower people, and it looks to help businesses and startups and entrepreneurs, which is in line with the spirit of the show. So the new sponsor of the show, of the innovation show for the forthcoming months is Microsoft for Startups. And Microsoft's tagline, which I love, is empowering every person and company on the planet to achieve more. So just going to say that I'm not going to bug you as a listener. I'm not going to interrupt the flow of the show with messages the whole time. But I am going to mention the sponsor because the sponsor is enabling me to invest in the show, grow the show, got a new website, for example, on the innovation show.io. And it's a great pleasure to have them on board. So with that, let's move on to today's show. In his 14 plus years as a strategic communications trainer, the biggest obstacle our guest comes across, one that connects directly to nervousness, stammering, rambling and epic fail, is that most speakers and writers don't have a point. They typically have just a title, a theme, a topic, an idea, an assertion, a catchphrase, or even something much less. A point is something more. It's a contention you can propose, argue, defend, illustrate, and prove. When we have a point, our influence snaps into place. We communicate belief, conviction, and urgency. Our guest shows us how to identify a point, leverage it, stick to it, and how to train others to identify and successfully make their own points. As professional communications have shifted to virtual environments, our guests noticed firsthand both highly effective and utterly ruinous approaches to using video conferencing technology to communicate and make strong points. We welcome author of Get to the Point, Sharpen Your Message and Make Your Words Matter, Joel Schwartzberg, friend of The Innovation Show, Welcome back. Thank you so much, Aiden. It's a pleasure to be here live from my house. It's great to have you back. I was prompted to reach out to you, Joel, in this new COVID world that has been thrust upon us. So many people are suffering from webcam fatigue, but one of the biggest culprits is not so much the tech, but as usual, the absence of a point. But before we come to your recent Harvard Business Review article called How to Elevate Your Presence in a Virtual Meeting, Let's recap on the point of the episode we had, which was now three years ago. In that episode and in your book, you tell us we often have what we think is a point, but it's often just a topic, a title, or a theme. Right, Aiden. And this is just as relevant, maybe even more so now in these virtual environments, whether you're on Zoom, Skype, Microsoft Teams, whatever virtual environment you're using to communicate, sometimes because we're at home or like we always say in our pajamas, we may relax a little bit. And one of the things we talked about uh, three years ago, and I talk about in my book, is the importance of knowing what a point is. You need to know what a point is before you can successfully make a point. And one of the key exercises I use and I recommend to know what your point is, is this thing called the I believe that test. Basically, you take what you think your point is, what you are bringing to that virtual meeting that you want to 
propose to other people so that they think or act differently or take it on or support it or commit to it or what have you. Take that idea. It's usually only a sentence. And the test is to put the words, I believe that in front of it. And if you then have a complete sentence, if it would impress your grammar school teachers as a complete sentence, not a fragment, not a run on, then you are on your way to making a point. So let's put this in terms of actual examples. If you thought your point was about podcasting, let's put, put that to the test. I believe that podcasting. See, that's not an actual sentence because you're not saying, well, how do you feel about podcasting? What are you arguing about podcasting? What is the impact you think podcasting will have on your millennial or other audience that you're trying to reach out to? Okay, you say, so my topic is the importance of podcasting or the impact of the pandemic. Let's put that to the test. I believe that the impact of the pandemic, still not a sentence because we're not telling our audience what that impact is. We're not making the point. We're stopping just short of it. So to bring us full circle, if you wanted to make a point, you wanted to make that complete sentence, it would sound something like, I believe that podcasting is the best way to reach our crucial millennial audience. Or I believe that the pandemic is changing the ways we communicate with each other forcing us to adapt to these new ways to be successful. And this is the same for writing. And just some of the nuggets that you shared with me back then three years ago that I've put into practice and I've so much benefited from. I mentioned to you when we were off air, one is with writing, the other is with speaking. I do a lot of keynotes and public speaking is I tell a lot of stories. So storytelling, and then I use a lot of quotes. And you tell us that when you do that, you have to actually qualify why you're using it. So if I do give a great quote, I have to follow it up and go, I share that quote in order to, or I share that quote because. This is really important now because we've fully adopted, communications professionals have this idea of the power of storytelling, right? So we all know we could, we've been to conferences, we've read books. It's really important to illustrate your point with a story. But here's the catch, and this is what you and I have been talking about, Aiden. The most important part of your story is not the story itself, but it's those words you immediately say after the story where you attach relevance to it. And those words sound something like this. This story illustrates why we must. This case study is a great example of how we can. Those are critical. Because otherwise, your story may be uh, riveting, but it's not relative. So you need to do the hard work of establishing relevance. Otherwise, you're virtually saying to your audience, all right, I'm putting my story out there. You make that connection to make it valuable to you or relevant to you. No, that's not your audience's job. That's your job as a communicator. So you need to say those explicit words, tie those points together, tie those bullets together, and make it very clear why did you choose the story? And why does the story best illustrate the point you're about to make? And the other thing, just when we're talking about, for example, a keynote or giving a public talk, you gave another great nugget to me, which was don't finish on somebody else's quote, which is something I used to do because I used to think that was so powerful. But you're like, you want people to remember you, not some dead guy's quote. And it, re it really stuck with me, man. I'd love if you'd share this. Sure. And sometimes a quote might be a good icebreaker to start as you're getting your audience comfortable with your idea. But a lot of times, and I see this in my practice often, is people say, oh, I have this fantastic 
Martin Luther King quote or this Einstein quote or from a business leader, it really captures what I want to say. So they put it at the very end and they end on it. And what they've effectively done is say, all right, I've come to the end. Here's my moment to shine, my moment to reinforce my key point. But instead, I'm going to give it to someone else, to this dead guy who doesn't know me, doesn't know my point, doesn't know my audience. And for some reason, I'm going to turn over my full responsibility to this stranger who you may have some association with, but it's a stranger to the point you're trying to make. So it really works against you. You have the power. You've gotten your audience's attention. Leverage all of that at the very end of your presentation or your message to make sure you are the one reinforcing your point because you've created credibility and reputation for yourself. So leverage it. Don't just throw it away and give it to someone who is completely tangential at best to what you're trying to do. It really stuck with me because even you told me that you need to write those points as if they're tweets, as if they're going to go out as a tweet or as if it's going to be something they quote about you. And actually, it really helps you hone your speech and really focus on what the ending and what you leave people with and the feeling you leave them with. It was so helpful, Joe. One of the other things I thought we'd share before we go on to that HBO article is your fantastic tips in Get to the Point on being a panelist or an MC at an event, because we're going to see more and more of this. And in a virtual world, it's even more difficult. But one of the things was that panelist, because a lot of people are fearful of public speaking. And it's a great first step into public speaking. Please share some of these great tips. Sure. And, you know, the truth is that it's a little more comfortable to be in a virtual platform than to be at a conference or at a major event, right? Because we're at home, we're sitting, we're in a comfortable environment. The problem with that or the peril with that is sometimes it makes us relax. You know, Aiden, there was an interesting BBC article that came out only about a few weeks ago, and it talked about what they called Zoom fatigue, though it applies to Microsoft Teams or Skype or whatever you happen to be using. And it's basically saying your body is at home, but your brain is at work. And the, you're trying to reconcile those two things, being at work, but being physically at home. And it's very difficult, and it creates an exhausting situation where you're literally exhausting by trying to reconcile these two dynamics and these two inclinations within our head and our body. So it's an exhausting experience. But if you are hosting a meeting or hosting a panel, what's most critical is that you recognize what the point of that panel is. And sometimes it's easiest to put it in the perspective of the audience. What do I most want my audience to receive and take away from this event? Then work your way backward. The mistake that panelists often make is they see themselves as putting out information, but they don't recognize the even more important dynamic, which is the audience receiving information. So A, what do I need to communicate to set up and contextualize what they're about to hear? B, how do I bring that out from my guests so that they're best reinforcing or educating people or illuminating people in regard to that major point. And then if you're on the panel, you also need to realize that you're also making points. When you're on the panel, there's a peril that people often have when they're being interviewed by the media, which is they think, oh, I'm here to answer questions. And that's not entirely true or relevant. The relevant thing is you're there to make a point that you preconceive that you know will be of value to your audience. Your job is to connect a question to that point, which gives you an opportunity 
to make it as a response. So that requires a lot of preparation, A, knowing what your point is and practicing how you turn a question into a point that you can share with your audience. Now, I'm not talking about being disingenuous or pivoting to something different than what's asked, but recognize what you're there to do. You're there to illuminate the audience about your point so that they can be more successful as a result. So your job is, again, to tie your point to those questions. Let's make that event valuable, not just entertaining. One of the last tips on this was when somebody tries to attack you, if you're on a panel, for example, you give some great tips in order to counter that. Recognize first that when someone is counterpointing you, let's invent a term here, someone is counterpointing you, that they are trying to take you off your point. Your job is not to debate them. Remember, your job is to make your point. You need to do everything possible to bring it back to your point. Now, some of the tactics, this will sound recognizable to some of you who have gone through media training. First thing is to acknowledge. I hear the question that you're asking, and I understand that that's a popular opinion. But here's the thing. And then you bring about your point. Uh, you can also agree or disagree with it. Yes, I agree with what you're saying. In fact, here's my point. Or I hear what you're saying, uh, but I disagree, and here's why. Because here's the thing. Now, recognize that each of these tactics are intended not to debate the other person, but to transition you to your job number one, which is making your point. Always keep that in mind. Sometimes we think, oh, if I get into it with this guy, I'm going to debate it and I'm going to win that debate. Well, it's not a debate and you're not here to address and debate that audience member's point. Again, you're there to make your own point. Yeah, it's fantastic. And it brings me back to another memory from reading your book, which was tell them what you're going to tell them, tell them, and then tell them what you just told them. And therefore, they memorize your point. And that's your key message is to make sure that message sent equals message received. Right. Nobody ever comes away from a presentation thinking, you know, she was terrific, but she made her point too many times. <laughs> <laughs> if the point has substance, then you can revisit it or show more examples of it. And one of the key things from the book that I want to make sure I get in is this idea that some people think that the more they say or the more details they provide, that it makes it a more valuable point because there's more baked into it. Imagine a CEO saying, this idea will make us successful because it'll make us more memorable, interesting, powerful, relatable, recognizable. Imagine 14 different adjectives I add there. We know instinctively that that's too much. But what I want to suggest leave people with is even three is too much. A one big idea is always better than more, even if you have to cut out some details, because we know an audience has a very finite attention span. And they, in fact, need more time to process what you're saying that you need to say it. So we need to keep it tight. One of the things I like to say is if you have lots of points, uh, they'll get none. If you have many points, they'll get some. If you have one point, they'll get all. So you want to keep that in mind as you present to an audience with, like I said, a limited attention span and an ability to only process so many points. I remember when I was reading your book, I thought back to when I was in school, in college, and writing school essays. I must have tortured the poor college professors because I used to put in every detail just to show I knew it. And that's not what the professor's looking for. They're looking for you to answer the question. And it just absolutely stayed with me and also made me think that 
this is something we should teach children. We should teach children at a young age, not only how to communicate, but how to write and how to make their points. These are the human skills that are so necessary for the new world that we're going into. With honor to Simon Sinek, you know, we, we like to talk about the what, we like to talk about the how, but it is the why that is most inspiring. Now, my work is about taking that why, understanding its power, and then understanding how to express the why. But yeah, it'd be great if we could teach kids. You know, my wife is actually an elementary school teacher, and she calls it the so what sometimes. So some uh, a student will write a book report explaining or giving like a table of contents. What is this? How many is it? Uh, how many times has this happened? How many people are involved? But they don't explain why is this important? So what? Because kids understand that. You know, if a kid said to you, I like this TV show better than that TV show, and you say, why? They can answer that question. So they understand the concept of why. It'd be great if we could start training children early on that concept. One last thing, because this would be really helpful. I was telling you off air that uh, I had some great news, which is we have a new sponsor for the show, which is Microsoft for Startups. And in Get to the Point, you talk about how NPR passed the pledge test. And this would be really helpful for us, even me and our new partners, Microsoft, in formulating that message. One of the examples, and, and let me start by saying I'm, a, I'm an NPR fan. I listen to NPR. But one of the messages we hear during their fund drives here, or any nonprofit really, is send us money or support us financially. And if we think about it and we apply the I believe that test, yes, it passes the test. I believe that you should send us money. But why should we send them money? What impact will it have? How will it elevate society? or change people, or change the world. So we go a little bit further, and we say, you should donate to NPR because it's important. But then we have what I call a badjective. Important, very good, awesome, great, even interesting. These are words that are so broad that they have virtually no meaning anymore, because what's important to me may not be important to you. And what am I really saying when something is very good? Am I saying anything at all? So, all right, so let's replace that adjective important with something meaningful, like donating to NPR will create important or relevant programming or will create quality programming. And this is what we often hear. Donating to this nonprofit will create these great programs or services. And the only thing I would say to that is a point is more valuable when it ends with an impact to people or society versus things or structures, basically something organic. So we can improve that point even further by saying, donating to public radio or this nonprofit will create a better informed society, or will save more lives, or will save the earth. Notice these are things that are affecting what's important to us as human beings, people, earth, society, versus this idea will increase our web traffic. This idea will increase our membership roles. See how those things are sort of limited because you're talking about a thing versus changing the world, changing people, changing society. I love that. That's so helpful because I was even talking to the team, the Microsoft team this morning, and the Microsoft kind of mantra is empowering every person and company on the planet to achieve more. And he was telling me actually that he was so happy that that became the kind of tagline for Microsoft. And that shift totally changed his mindset. And, and as you said earlier on about Cynic, the whole idea of the why. But it also helped me kind of think, 
and you helped me think the last day we, we did this live on air. You said like, why do you do the show? And I do the show for the same idea. It's, it's because this world of other complexity we're in, we need new thinking to replace old thinking. We need to unlearn as much as we need to relearn. And therefore I do the show every week and have great guests like yourself on because we don't get enough of this, man. You know, we don't get enough new thinking. We don't get enough empowering of new thoughts and knowing that we're not alone, you know, and that's why I believe that this information is is absolutely so important to share with the world. And, you know, think about when you go to a webinar, do you go to a webinar to check a box? You go to a webinar to hear people speak? Uh, no, you go to a webinar to hopefully improve the way you are operating, to improve your sales, or improve your effectiveness. Well, if we can all agree on that, then let's take it back to the people running the webinar. That is their goal, to elevate people, not to check a box, not to say, hey, we created a webinar. <laughs> uh, everyone can really, if they think hard about it, they can connect what they're doing. If they are doing something somewhat noble, uh, they connect what they're doing to an elevation of people, society, or customers. It's your job as a communicator to identify that and to champion that. We'll move on from the Get to Point book, but I have to say it's such a succinct book. I took so much from it and because you really do walk the talk. But one of the reasons I reached out was that HBR article, which was called How to Elevate Your Presence in a Virtual Meeting. And I was thinking about it today and how perhaps my kids will never know what a commute is, just as they don't know what a VHS, although I have one in the attic. They don't know what a phone booth is unless they see one. Sometimes we have them here on country roads in Ireland, but they may not know what the idea of the commute that you and I know or that many people know because only in recent days, Facebook, Spotify, Shopify, and Twitter have all made we're going flexible with our workforce statements. And Spotify's global workforce can work from home until next year. The Shopify employees can do so as long as they please. And for anyone on Twitter, it's forever. And meanwhile, Mark Zuckerberg wants Facebook to be the exemplars of remote working. So that's the the state of the nation from remote working. And, you know, I know a lot of people will go back to work, but we need to get used to this new virtual world. And new work practices means a lot of businesses and a lot of us as employees have been caught unawares. And as Warren Buffett said, only when the tide goes out, you discover who's swimming naked and many of us <laughs> many of us are naked <laughs> many of us are naked joe and i don't mean you know having the webcam just on your upper torso <laughs> right you say, i don't mean that literally <laughs> no but you say communication tactics that work well among colleagues in a conference room may not translate seamlessly to the brady bunch style quadrants <laughs> on a computer screen organizational Behavior professor Andy Malinsky recommends seeing virtual meetings as an entirely different context, not simply an in-person meeting or a class on a screen. Mm -hmm. And uh, Aiden, you know, you mentioned that in the future there may be no commutes. I think for our children's children, they may not even know what a classroom is. Uh, so it's really important that we graduate to the idea that not only are we moving our live meetings to virtual meetings. But we need to accept the changes and the opportunities that happens as we move it to a virtual meeting. And just to take a step back, if we give a presentation on a Monday morning to our colleagues, 
And we compare that to giving a presentation at a major conference to an audience. We recognize right away, those are two different things and our minds are going to be operating differently, but we're doing the same thing. We are ourselves and we are communicating to an audience. So recognize that whenever you change the context, whether it's your meeting room to a conference or your meeting room to a computer screen, you need to recognize what's different and leverage those things. And unfortunately, one of the reasons I wrote the article is because as I went to webinars, as I was in meetings that were all virtual, I noticed a lot of things people were doing to sabotage the strength of their points. Some of them were old school things because they got relaxed and didn't realize that they need to maintain their volume. They need to know what their points are. But some of them are new school things. And it comes down to simple things like how you frame yourself and where you're looking when you're on screen. Now, one of the things I recommend to my clients is that your head and your shoulders should fill the screen uh, because that's the best way to communicate and to show yourself and expose yourself and your point to your audience. What is the opposite of this? What are the don't do's? Well, sometimes I see people very far back as if they're not being seen on screen. Sometimes people put themselves uh, against a very busy background with a lot of people walking back and forth, and that can be distracting. And on some of these platforms, you can use what's called virtual backgrounds. Sometimes they're silly. Sometimes they're interesting. Just remember the key rule, which is you want to have very few distractions between you and the audience as you're trying to make your point, just as you would in a real setting. If you're at a real conference, you wouldn't sit in the back of the room. You wouldn't wear a funny mask. You wouldn't be playing with things as you spoke. So imagine yourself as if you're at an actual meeting. And by that, I mean, you're there the full time, not just when you're speaking. So put yourself in full frame and make sure there are few distractions between you and your audience. Now, I'll tell you one funny thing, Aiden. In the original version of the Harvard Business Review article, I put in a note about try to keep your children and your pets in another room. And the editors pushed back and they said two things. One, A, this is impossible for many people, which is true. And B, you know, it's sometimes kind of fun to get the kid in there or the cat in there. And it creates a sort of lively uh, presence and people enjoy themselves. So what I did was I basically came to a compromise, which was this. If you are just in the meeting and you are uh, paying attention and occasionally spontaneously contributing, it is fine to have these things come and go so long it doesn't get in your way and it doesn't get in your audience's way because you are a passive participant. However, if you are tasked to give a major presentation, which means you probably had a week's worth of notice, it is incumbent on you to remove those distractions. And sometimes they're just audio distractions. We can hear children in another room. Try to find a way to put those children, to put those pets, not to be uh, uh, focused on too many species, in another room so they're not distracting. Because the truth is, Aiden, you cannot parent and present simultaneously. It is impossible. So for that moment where it's so important that you make your points, you are tasked or assigned to do this ahead of time, you're giving out critical information, do all you can. Don't throw your hands up and don't assume that those factors won't be distracting because they will, not only to your audience, but to you. One of the things that you said in the article as well, which is something that we often overlook. And again, it's that kind of whiplash effect between your mind is in work, but your body's at home. And you're, you're probably kind of have this psychological effect of kind of not knowing where you quite are. But one of the things is 
you may be relaxed at home. My wife says this to me at all, all the time that she often has to ask me to repeat myself. And she goes, you speak for a living. <laughs> Why do I have to ask you to repeat yourself? Because I can't hear you. I actually realized it's because I tend to mumble because I'm relaxed and I'm chilled out. But you say when we do this with virtual meetings, we have to project our voice in order to make our point. Right. Volume is key. And it's one of the big parts of my book and one of the big parts of my workshop. And it's even more important on these virtual platforms, because like you say, Aiden, we think, oh, there's a microphone or maybe there's a microphone even on my mouth so I can relax and I can talk in a conversational tone and like this because we're all friends here and we're just we're just chatting, really. But one of the things I always say is when you increase your volume, like I'm doing now, I'm speaking at a louder volume than I would traditionally speak. So many things happen besides just being audible. You increase the projection of confidence, of competence, of authority. You sound like you know what you're talking about. You even sound like you're at a higher level in your organizational hierarchy than you were before. In live environments and even on these virtual environments, I do a little test where I ask people, just say your name, your title, and a few words or just one through five, but say it in a volume that is uncomfortably loud, perhaps ridiculously and inappropriately loud, according to the voices in your own head. Don't scream or don't yell, but just be louder than you would ordinarily be. And you know what, Aiden, when I ask the people in the audience, the participants in the, in the virtual meeting, what changed? What adjective would they ascribe to the difference in the presentation style? They say that the speaker sounded more assertive, knowledgeable, even confident. But if I asked a client to sound more confident, they wouldn't know what to do. Well, how do I sound more like a leader? How do I sound more confident? But again, even a child knows how to increase volume. So what I'm saying is when you increase your volume, you make that deliberate decision, people will think you are more competent, more confident, more authoritative. They will pay more attention. So raise your volume, even if there's an, a microphone picking you up. You know, even if you're at a microphone at an actual conference, I still tell people, increase your volume because you will increase your impact. One other benefit of increasing volume is I'm a fast talker, naturally, and a lot of people are. So volume is one of the ways I counteract my instinct to speak quickly, because I know if I'm speaking at a loud volume, that I just won't have enough breath to speak quickly. So it slows me down, which is key. Because when I slow down my communication, when I embrace pauses, I'm able to put my mind in front of my mouth. And I'm actually able to create and conceive what I want to say before I even physically say it, which is a great benefit, a jewel for communicators to be able to think before they speak. We have an upcoming show with Howard Ross, who's a diversity and bias and inclusion expert. and. Howard talks a lot about the idea of how we tend to listen to certain people in an office place, an office environment more than others. And I thought for those people who are more introverted, they are either going to go into their shell more in this virtual environment or it's their chance to shine. So you talk about there are, there are gender differences in speech and there are there are definitely bias towards different genders in the in the workplace. So for females in particular, you give some tips in the book. The tips are for everyone, but let's focus for a moment on our female listeners. 
What are the tips you give them from a communication perspective? First, understand that there's nothing inherent about your gender that makes you less capable of producing a strong point. So this is not about uh, anything inherent in a person. It is about biases that your audience bring to you. And one of the ways this is this has an impact in, in the context of gender is that some female speakers in particular are concerned that if they raise their volume, which is what I'm saying and suggesting across the board, that if they raise their volume, they will be perceived as aggressive or perhaps sometimes shrill or that people will attach a, a negative quality to it. But here's what I always say in response to that, and it's very simple. You always need to speak up, even when your audience needs to grow up. And by that, I mean you will always benefit from a stronger voice, as long as you're not shouting or screaming, because it will have impact. When I did this volume test in my live workshops, and the speaker, she was fearful that she might come across as aggressive. I say, all right, let's put this to the test. So she increased her volume, and then I pulled the people in the room, and I've done this hundreds of times over the years. And the response I get, never does the word aggressive come up. Now, maybe they're just trying to please me or they don't want to uh, uh, embarrass themselves in class. But by and large, I think they're being honest. The word they use instead is assertive. You come across more assertive. So the message I want to get to people who think they might come across as aggressive because of volume, regardless of your gender, is it is a fiction. Now, some people bring fictions, as we know, to their discourse and to their understanding. That is their problem. They need to work that out. That is not your problem. I tell my speakers, do not over-customize yourself to every little picadillo or bias or prejudice in your audience. You will end up completely sabotaging your presentation. Instead, know the key things that should apply to most of your audience, which is use volume, make points, and champion your ideas. Just building on that point, Joe, one of the things that I've noticed, and maybe it's just that my kids are growing up a little bit more, but it's particularly, I think, influenced by a lot of American TV, which is now widespread because of the prevalence of Netflix and Disney Plus, et cetera, is up-talking. Because it's, I'm just, maybe I'm more aware of it. Maybe I'm just tuned into it, but it's definitely there and hopefully not on the rise. Up-talk sounds like this, where you're virtually ending your, all your senses with question marks. Uh, because this is the way we should go. Our traffic is going up. Our customers uh, believe this. And so we're going to try this new activity to to connect to them because we think it's a good idea. I think because I'm asking a question. Maybe I don't know. I need your help. That's why I'm asking you. <laughs> so you see the question mark makes it sound like you're asking a question. That's what UpTalk is when you end with the sound of a question mark. Now, there may be gender, geographical, contextual, community-based reasons. People end with UpTalk. Maybe it's based on what part of the country they're from. But we just need to recognize that the simple truth, when you sound like you're asking a question, you're basically communicating to your audience, I need you to affirm what I just said. Even if it's not a question, if it merely sounds like a question. But if you end with a period, you're saying this I believe. And there's a test in my workshop, I believe it's in my book also I do, where I ask people not to use words, but to use numbers. And say these two numbers, one, two, three, four, five, and these numbers, one, two, three, four, five. I ask them which range projects more confidence, competence, authority, and strength. And universally, 
they pick the ones ending with period. And what it proves is that when you end a sentence with a period, no matter what that sentence is, it will convey all of those positive qualities, strength, authority, confidence. If you end with a question mark, you are sabotaging or limiting your ability to make that point with strength. Now, it's very difficult. Sometimes I have people straight out of college who are shy wallflowers who can naturally end their sentences in periods. And I have CEOs who always end their sentences in question marks. So it is not a function on your experience or even your training. But the first way to overcome it is to recognize and train your ear for it. So I'm thankful that, Aiden, you've recognized it. And you should look for that when you see speeches, when you watch media, look for them ending in question marks. If you can train your ear for them, that is the first step toward recognizing it. And ultimately, if you slow down, if you embrace pauses, then someday you will see that ahead of time, that question mark coming, and you will say to yourself deliberately, especially when you're making your point, I am going to end this with a period. Doesn't mean every sentence needs to end with a period. There's benefits to vocal variety, but when you're making your point, that is where you want to say, this I believe. Try to train your voice and try to practice ending with a period. And it's so helpful on the show like this as well, when we're connected by audio only, because it's a cue to me to know that you're finished your sentence as well, which is so helpful when I have great guests on the show who do that. It just stops all the editing that needs to be done otherwise. <laughs> but last thing then, I was thinking a nice way to finish up today would be you've given a kind of succinct overview of the Get to the Point book. We've discussed that. But you give six points really in that HBR article that people can take away. And I'll, I'll link to that article as well in the show notes. But perhaps we'll finish on that, and that'd be a great way to finish today's show. Sure. And I'll pluck out the most important ones so you can link to the article. But the ones that really resonated to me and inspired me to write the article was first, know your point ahead of time. Make sure you're looking into the camera. This is one that people don't get. And it's natural to look at other people on what I call that Brady Bunch grid because we're human beings. We want to look at other faces. But we also know eye contact is very important. And unfortunately, in this new virtual world, eye contact means looking at that small, cold, little black dot at the top of your screen, or maybe you have a camera attached to the top of the screen. It is not a person. It is a thing. And so it's difficult and uncomfortable to look at that dot, but recognize that when you're looking into that dot, that is when you're making eye contact. So if you're coming to a point, if there's one big cell line that you're about to get to, uh, Take that moment to look into the camera, not at the other people. Other basic things are to make sure to stay muted. Some people, you don't want to be the person to say, hey, Joel, unmute yourself. So stay unmuted ahead of time because you never know what kind of distractions may come up. And the final thing is really about framing yourself. Make sure that you realize you're always on camera. Even if you're not speaking, people will be looking at you. So act that way. And if you can dress for the event, I recommend that you do that as well. Whatever you would wear normally to a meeting, you only help yourself make that same impression if you dress the same way. We may feel like we're at home and there's that imbalance, but overcome that by imagining yourself in a real meeting. What would you wear? How would you comport yourself? Where would you be looking? Would you be checking your email or would you be present? Use that guide to make the strongest decisions so that you can champion your points most effectively. 
Once again, my thanks to Microsoft for Startups, where B2B startups scale. Joel, where can people find out more about you, your workshops, your book, etc.? Thanks, Aiden. You know, I love to share these ideas and many of the ideas I share for free. So you can find out more about my services, more about the book at www.joelschwartzberg.net. That's J-O-E-L-S-C-H-W-A-R-T-Z-B-E-R-G.net. Or you can follow me at Twitter at The Joel Truth, where I share a lot of these ideas all the time. In fact, it's most of what I do because I really want to get this out there author of Get to the Point, Sharpen Your Message, and Make Your Words Matter, and friend of the Innovation Show, Joel Schwartzberg, thank you for joining us. Thank you so much, Aiden. It's been a pleasure.